Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. I've opened my Bible this morning to the 31st Psalm, and I want to begin by reading a portion beginning in the ninth verse. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. Mine eye is consumed with grief, yea, my soul and my belly, for my life is spent with grief, and my years with sighing. My strength faileth because of mine iniquity, and my bones are consumed. I was a reproach among all mine enemies, but especially among my neighbors, and a fear to mine acquaintance. They that did see me without fled from me. I am forgotten as a dead man out of mind. I am like a broken vessel. For I have heard the slander of many. Fear was on every side. While they took counsel together against me, they devised to take away my life. But I trusted in thee, O Lord. I said, Thou art my God. My times are in thy hand. Deliver me from the hand of mine enemies and from them that persecute me. I want to begin this morning by asking a question. Where may a child of God learn theology? Of course, theology is the queen of the sciences. It's uh, the study of God. That's what the word means. And there's no higher study than the knowledge of God. Where can you go to learn about God? Obviously, we can learn some things about God from nature. Psalm 19 Verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. Indeed, every morning when the sun rises, and every evening when it sets, we are reminded of his loving kindness in the morning, and his faithfulness every night. So you can learn some things about God in nature, but nature is like elementary school. You don't learn that he chose a people in Christ before the foundation of the world in nature. You don't learn about predestination or the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ in nature. You don't learn about the resurrection. You can see illustrations of it in nature, but you don't automatically deduce that great doctrine from just looking at the flowers and the trees. Indeed, my friends, nature is a teacher, but it's a very rudimentary teacher. Then we learn theology from Scripture. If you want to learn about God, go to the Word of God, for it is a thorough furnisher. It's in the Holy Scriptures that God is on display. The Word of God reveals the God of the Word. It reveals Him as the Creator God, as the covenant-keeping God. It reveals Him as the God of history. It reveals Him as the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But I suggest that we can also learn theology in life, in our daily experience. You may not have a very academic or scholastic precision in your knowledge of God. That is, you may not be able to properly define the great doctrines of Scripture. You know them when you hear them. But if you were asked to describe who God is in very precise and technical theological jargon, You probably wouldn't be able to do so, but yet you know who God is in your experience, an experiential knowledge, don't you? 
you have a personal knowledge of God. And that's what we see in this 31st Psalm. Here is a Psalm that teaches us various lessons about God from the way he's dealt with us in daily life. Now Psalm 31 is one of 50 lament psalms in the Psalter. Bible students categorize the psalms into praise psalms. There are imprecatory psalms, that is, cursing psalms, in which the psalmist calls on God to judge his enemies. And there are lament psalms, 50 of them. Now, there are 150 psalms in the Psalter, so that's one-third of the entire Psalter is dedicated to this form that we would call a lament or a weeping psalm. In other words, David in Psalm 31 is singing the blues. And maybe you've been there. Perhaps I'm speaking to somebody today who is troubled, who is in deep distress. Your life is in chaos. There are problems all around you. I think each one of us as we go through life have moments when we're in the valley of affliction. Of course, there are times when you're on the mountaintop. That's wonderful. Aren't you glad that uh, it doesn't rain every day? Aren't you glad the sun shines sometimes? But sometimes it seems that we go through seasons in which the clouds hang low and the sun no longer glows. The woes of life overtake us. And the psalmist David was in this condition here in Psalm 31, this deep distress in which the woes of life have overtaken him. I want to make one more preliminary comment about this psalm before we actually look at the content of it. Passages from Psalm 31 are quoted by at least three different people in the Bible, three important Bible characters. Each one begins with the letter J. Jonah, in Jonah chapter 2, verse 8, quotes verse 6, where he says, I have hated them that regard lying vanities, but I trust in the Lord. Whether it's a verbatim quote or not, he at least alludes to the sixth verse from Psalm 31, and a lying vanity is, is an idol, the work of a man's hands that he has fabricated to pray to, to trust in. He said that's a lying vanity. It's deceptive. There's nothing substantive and real. It's vain. Jonah quotes, or at least alludes to Psalm 31.6. The second man is Jeremiah. The phrase in verse 13, I have heard the slander of many. Fear was on every side. Jeremiah quotes that verse almost verbatim in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 10, when he decided that he was going to resign the ministry, that he was going to turn in his prophet's badge, and he was just going to quit. I've often thought of an anecdote about my late great-uncle elder Jimmy Bass and his wife. He told her one time that he was just going to quit preaching. He was so discouraged he was just going to quit, and she said, well, Jimmy, you've got to start before you can quit. <laughs> I'll tell you, she had the spiritual gift of taking the wind out of somebody's sails, no doubt. Jeremiah was so depressed, he said, I'm just going to quit preaching. I'm not going to try anymore. I'm just going to resign. But he said, I heard the defaming of many, fear on every side. Jeremiah almost quotes this exactly in Jeremiah chapter 20. And he said, I couldn't stop. I couldn't forbear. I wanted to quit preaching, but I couldn't because I heard people saying things that were not true about God. I heard the defaming or the slander of many, fear on every side. And by the way, that expression, fear on every side, is repeated at least a half dozen times in the book of Jeremiah and also Lamentations. It's almost as if that's his motto in life, fear on every side. You ever felt like that? Fear is everywhere around. 
There are fears for our health, there are fears for our government, there are fears for our safety physically, spiritually, there are fears for the future of the country, fears for the future of the church, fears for our family. You say there's fear on every side. You ever feel like that? And then Jesus is the third person who alludes to or references Psalm 31, and he did it when he was upon the cross. His last saying on the cross is a rendition of verse 5, Into thine hand I commit my spirit. Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. Jesus said that on the cross, Into thy hand, O Lord, I commit, I commend, I roll my spirit, my safety, my life, my future. I give it all to you, O God. Jesus used that expression on the cross. Now, if you're studying Psalm 31, we can divide it into several different segments, and preachers and commentators vary in the way that they distribute this psalm, but here's the way I'm going to do it this morning. Verses 1 to 9 is a prayer, a prayer of lament, verses 1 through 9. Verses 10 to 14 is a reflection on the past. Verses 15 to 18, he returns to prayer, petitioning God for grace and mercy. Verses 19 to 22 is praise. And verses 23 and 24 is an exhortation to you and me. Notice his prayer of lament in verses 1 to 9. He starts off by saying this, In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Now when you read the Psalms, my friends, read them existentially. That means put yourself into the shoes of the Bible writer. Ask yourself questions like, how must it have felt to be going through what David was going through on this occasion? And apply the words to yourself. Now you might ask, preacher, what was David going through on this occasion? And we're not sure exactly. But I want you to notice that in the first nine verses, the language he uses describes him as a hunted man. Now you may remember there were two occasions in David's life in which he was a hunted man. First, Saul chased David over mountain and vale for about 10 years. Remember when Saul became very jealous and envious at David's popularity and he saw David as a threat to his throne and Saul tried to kill him on a couple of occasions. Finally, David left and he lived for about a decade as a fugitive and a vagabond hiding out in caves and Saul chased him for a period of time. You can read all about that in 1 Samuel. It came in the aftermath of David's victory over Goliath. Some of the sisters in the church had started a new song that went like this. Verse 1 says, Saul hath slain his thousands, ascribing mighty victories to Saul. But verse 2 made Saul upset. Now he loved the first verse of that song, but he didn't like the second verse. The second verse says, and David hath slain his ten thousands. And Saul didn't appreciate that one bit. They've ascribed to me but thousands, but they've ascribed to him ten thousands. And what shall he have more but the kingdom? Is what Saul said. Indeed, my friend, Saul wanted to get rid of this rival to his power and his reign. You know, human nature hasn't changed much in uh, the last thousands of years, has it? Uh, People are still the same way today, and uh, David, therefore, was on the run for a while. One of the images he uses in the Psalter is that he chased me like a hunter chases a partridge. And remember I said verses 10 to 14 speaks of reflection on his past experience. Since a portion of this psalm is a look back at a time in which he was a hunted man, 
It's very possible that the occasion for writing Psalm 31 was the second season in his life in which he was on the run. His own son Absalom attempted to take David's kingdom. There was a coup d'etat. It was a family rivalry. Unbeknownst to David, Absalom had stolen the hearts of the people of Israel away from the king. He had stood at the entry to the gate and told the people as he flattered them and spoke with them. If he was in charge, he would help them with their problems. And he had gained momentum. He had attracted a following. And pretty soon, Absalom revolted against his father and David had to flee the castle, flee the palace under threat for his life. And it's very possible that it's the second occasion of living as a fugitive that gives occasion to the writing of Psalm 31. But whatever the occasion is, it's very evident that he laments the crisis that is before him. It is troubling him. In fact, I read it in the reading just a moment ago where he says in verse 9, Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. Have you ever felt like that? You ever been in a situation in your life where you said, Lord, please be merciful to me because I'm in trouble. In the first verse again, David says, In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Lord, don't let me be left high and dry. For I have trusted thee, he says. I've put my faith in thee. Deliver me in thy right. He needs help. And he feels very keenly his need for the Lord on this occasion. Bow down thine ear to me, he says in verse 2. Lord, I'm way down here, you're way up there. Lord, please come close because I need help. And deliver me speedily. You know, God's never been a minute late. He always works at the right time and in the right way. Now, when Peter was sinking in the water, remember the story? He's walking on the water and he saw the winds boisterous and he began to sink. The water's up to his chin, you know, he's, he's going down quickly. He didn't need, he couldn't have languished in that condition for very long, could he? He needed help right then. Make haste to deliver me. That's where David is on this occasion. David says, Lord, I need help and I need it right now. Why does he need help? Verse 4, he says, pull me out of the net that they have laid privately for me. He needs help because he's in a crisis of persecution. There are plots and schemes against him. He's facing all sorts of slander and ridicule. You know, one of the things that David experienced when he was on the run from Saul is Saul led a public relations campaign against David. You know, when David was not there to defend himself, he was sort of incognito. He was living, you know, the life of a quiet fugitive trying to stay on the run. He wasn't in the public eye for about a decade. During that time, Saul was able to spread all sorts of rumors and innuendo and slander about David, and he turned public opinion against the man that had actually delivered the nation from the threat of Goliath, the giant of the Philistines. And here he says, they have privately laid a net for me. That is, they have concocted this plot. They have conspired together to try to entrap me. If you've never been chased or hunted, if you've never felt like somebody was after you, then you, I'm happy for you because that's a miserable kind of feeling. David is on the run. He's being chased. He has people after him. They're telling things about him that are not true. They're slandering him. They're gossiping about him. And he says, Lord, I need help. I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. This is a prayer. He's in a crisis of persecution. Notice verse 13. He says, I've heard the slander of many. 
fear on every side. While they took counsel together against me, they devised to take away my life. Now, his life was in jeopardy. They were threatening to kill him. Saul, you may remember, was on this mad campaign to exterminate David. He tried to smite him to the wall twice with a javelin. On two occasions, God, as it were, opened the door, delivered Saul into David's hand, but David refused to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. You may remember he did take his sword and cut this, a swath off of Saul's garment on one occasion. You remember that? And he held it up later and he said, look, look, I could have slain you, but I had mercy on you. But you know, it says that his heart smote him even after he did that. His conscience screamed that was wrong. You shouldn't have done that. You came awfully close to actually doing physical harm. But yet, when you're on the run, you feel like your life is in jeopardy. You're being persecuted. They're slandering you and plotting against you and trying to take you out. It's hard to think straight in those situations. Verse 18 says, let the lying lips be put to silence. Notice another reference to their lies that they were telling about him. I don't know what your political affiliation is, and I'm not making a political statement here this morning, but I have to tell you, I wonder if I could endure, I don't think I could, the kinds of press that our recent president has endured for the past four years. Put yourself into that situation. Could you have taken the daily onslaught of vitriol and invective that has been levied against him? Now, if you're in the public eye, if you're in any position of leadership, you're going to attract some criticism. But you know, I don't even like it when somebody goes to sleep in one of my sermons <laughs> or tells me they disagree with me. I mean, somebody says something that sort of takes issue with a position I've taken or something I've said. I'm not even crazy about that. I, I sure don't think that I could endure just relentless verbal assaults. That's where David is on this occasion. He's in crisis. Now, maybe you're in crisis today, but your situation is not exactly like David's. I dare say, though, that the principle that's here is the same. And David, in the midst of this slander and the plots and schemes and persecution against him, he petitions God to vindicate and deliver him. That's what he's doing in the first verse. In thee, O Lord, do I trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in thy righteousness. He's saying, Lord, please help me. Deliver me. Vindicate me. He prays to God to be his refuge and defense. In verse 2, deliver me speedily. Be thou my strong rock for a house of defense to save me. Lord, I need a place to hide. I need a refuge. A strong rock. Obviously, David took shelter in many caves in the mountainside, and he uses the physical benefit that these caves had provided to him and applies it spiritually. And he says, Lord, would you be my strong rock? and a house of defense to save me, that is, to deliver me. David prays to God to be his defense and to be his guide. Verse 3, For thou art my rock and my fortress, therefore for thy name's sake lead me and guide me. I need guidance. I need refuge. Lord, I need a place to hide. I need to know the way forward. I need deliverance. Lord, I need help. I'm in trouble. So you see the prayer of lament. Notice in verses 10 to 14, you, he reflects on the past. Now, he's been speaking in present tense, right? Now he says in verse 10, for my life is spent with grief. Now he thinks back 
on all of his troubles that he's had in the past. By the way, when you're in present crisis, it has a way of making you remember all of the troubles you've seen in the past. You know that old song? Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. <laughs> Nobody knows my sorrow. And when you're in a present valley of affliction, it's easy to start thinking, you know, that's all I've ever had are setbacks and problems. And we tend to exaggerate. But I'm sure if you've lived for any length of time, you have had your share, right? Is there anybody here that's over 20 years old that has escaped virtually trouble-free and hassle-free in your life? No, I've had my disappointments. I've had my heartaches. I've had my struggles with temptation, my own personal failures. I've had my own attitude problems, my own relational stresses and difficulties, my own financial reversals, haven't you? And David reflects back as he's in pre this present crisis, he says, Lord, my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. And by the way, life is more sighing than it is singing. I mean, for the most part. Somebody said there are three stages in life, sobs, sighs, and songs. Sobs, sighs, and songs, and sighs predominate. Now, we've had our moments of sobbing, just uncontrollable weeping, grief, deep grief, but thank God that's not par for the course. I don't think I could endure it if I had sobbing every day. And we've had our moments of victory and song and celebration, but that's not dominant. Most of my life, you know, life is a struggle. And every day you've got to work at getting your attitude right and mustering your energy and saying, okay, I'm going to keep going forward and I'm going to have some perseverance and tenacity about me. You do have to keep going and much of the time we spend our time sighing. David says, my years are spent with sighing. My life is spent with grief. Notice as he recalls his past experience, he feels a certain amount of gloom and maybe even hopelessness and he's struggling with a sense of isolation. He says, my strength faileth because of mine iniquity. Now, notice he admits some sin in his life. And he says, I feel very weak. I'm just, I'm struggling with my own old nature and my strength fails. I feel like I'm losing heart because of my own sins and my bones are consumed. He's even feeling the physical effects of the troubles of his life, he says, I was a reproach among all mine enemies, but especially among my neighbors. This language indicates that he's feeling very much alone. My enemies didn't like me, and even my neighbors were keeping their distance. And I was a fear to mine acquaintance. Even my friends were afraid to get too close. You ever heard that old country songs that you learn who your friends are when you're going through crisis? Well, there's a certain amount of truth to that. But you know, there are people who love you, but who uh, decide that they just have enough of their own problems and don't want to get involved when you're passing through difficulty. And it seems that when you're low, when I'm low, my friends stand aloof, you know. I can look back to the lowest moments of my life and see maybe two or three that stood close to me. And I'm so thankful for them. I'm so thankful that I was never left alone. How about you? Look back to the lowest moment of your life. Can't you see a few that stood with you? Never been totally abandoned. And by the way, for a child of grace, did you know there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother? And in your darkest moments, he's the lily in your valleys. 
Jesus is a friend always. When you're, the rest of your friends have forsaken you and fled, like at the cross. Remember, all the disciples forsook Jesus and fled. He's the loneliest figure in history. You and I will never have to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because Jesus said that so that you'll never have to. But dear friends, I'm glad to say that God in his mercy has given me a few folks in my darkest hours to go through the valley with me and to help me. You know, that's one of the scenes I love the most from Bunyan's allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, is that when he went through his deepest despair, he had a friend with him named Hopeful. When Christian was in the castle of giant despair, doubting castle, Hopeful was with him. When he went through Vanity Fair, he had a friend with him named Faithful. And throughout his journey, God was faithful to give him a traveler to go with him and a, a companion to encourage him along the way. And he's done that for me. Well, the, the psalmist reflects on his past experience here. And you know, when David was pursued by Saul, did you know David had a friend? Saul's son, Jonathan, loved David as his own soul. And he helped David to escape. And of course, after he escaped, he didn't see Jonathan anymore. But then God sent him 600 men who were discontented by living in Saul's kingdom. That is, they were in debt, they were distressed, they were discontented. These people had had their fill of the kingdom of Saul, and they allied themselves to this fugitive. They joined themselves to David. I've always loved that passage. And my friends, may I say there's a parallel to that in the spiritual experience of the little child of grace when he gets tired of this world, and he comes out from the world, and he allies himself to the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes unto him without the camp bearing his reproach. He's willing to align himself with this one who has been so maligned by men, yet he says, I want to be on his team. I want to fight battles with him. What a joy it is when a little child of grace decides to unite himself to the church and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So the psalmist reflects on his past experience. He talks in terms of his isolation. He says, they that did see me without fled from me. Verse 11, verse 12, I'm forgotten as a dead man out of mind. I'm like a broken vessel. My, the language here is vivid. Would you say that David is feeling heavy burdens at this point? He has an inward disquiet and chaos. He feels pressured. In fact, look at verse 7. Did you know this word, adversities, at the end of verse 7? For thou hast considered my trouble, thou hast known my soul in adversities. That word adversities literally means pressures. It speaks of a straight place. The word straight means difficult. Somebody says, I'm between a rock and a hard place. I'm in a narrow place. I'm being pressured like I'm in a vice. He says, I feel like I don't have very many options right now, and I'm in a straight place. Notice the contrast between the word adversities, it speaks of a, a narrow place in verse 7 and the word and the phrase a large room in verse 8. Thou hast not shut me up into the hand of the enemy, thou hast set my feet in a large room. Do you see the difference between being in a straight place, a narrow place, pressured, and now he's in a broad place, a large room? God has delivered him from not having many options to great freedom. And what a blessing that is. And he's done that in my life as well. Now, I don't want to get too technical. But the psalm starts with a prayer of lament. 
He reflects then on a previous experience in which he'd been through a similar situation. And then he returns to prayer in verses 15 to 18. I read a portion of this just a moment ago to you. My times, he says, are in thy hand. I've always loved that verse. My times, Lord, are in your hand. My good times, my bad times. My happy times and my sad times. My times of popularity and my times of persecution. My times of employment and my times of unemployment. My times of plenty and my times of penury and poverty. My times of health and my times of sickness. He's saying, Lord, I'd, I'm glad to leave my case in your sovereign hands. Into thy hands, verse 5, I commit my spirit. Do you see that? I, Lord, I'm going to take my hands off the steering wheel. I'm going to cease to try to control the outcome. And I'm going to give it all to you. Now, if you're prone to being a control freak, <laughs> like I am, you know, I, I want to make sure everything goes just right. There's so many things in life we can't control, isn't that right? Did you know in the final analysis, there's only one thing that you can control, and that's your own way of reacting to any given set of circumstances. You can't control what other people do. You can't control what they think. You can't control what happens to you, really. You can be as careful and safe as you know how to be, but yet in the final analysis, my friends, we're really not in control of our lives. Somebody says, I'm interested in saving people's souls. Well, I can't even save my own soul. I'm not even in control of saving myself, much less helping you to get to heaven. I'm so thankful that my eternal destiny is in the control and in the sovereign hands of a covenant-keeping God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He did it. My friends, he holds his people securely. The sheep are safely sheltered in the good shepherd's hand. The psalmist says then, Lord, I, I'm going to turn my, the control of my life over to you. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. Now they, I don't mean to suggest that everything that happens to you or me is preordained, unalterably fixed, absolutely predestinated from the foundation of the world. But I mean to say, dear friends, that God in his providence is in charge. That's why we pray to him. That's why we trust him, because we know that he's involved in our lives and that he can change our circumstances. He can deliver us that whatever the situation is, however bad it looks, that God is still in ultimate control. And therefore, I'm glad to leave my times in his hands. Now, where have you learned that lesson? Did you learn that in nature? Did you learn it in an academic institution, you know where I've learned that God is trustworthy and that he's capable of taking care of me? I've learned that in the experiences of life. Haven't you? For the past almost uh, six decades, I can tell you that God has held my life safely in his sovereign hands. His hands, which are big enough to measure the waters in the span, as the 40th chapter of Isaiah says. His mighty hand of providence, my beloved, has never let go of me. Now, I've frequently lost my grip on him, but he's never lost his grip on me. And he's never lost his grip on you. That's why you're here today, right? God's held you in his hand. Heard people say, preacher, are you saying that salvation is in God's hands, not mine? I feel 
Very uncomfortable to think I'm not in control. My beloved, may I say, I'd mess it up if it was in my hands, and you would too. I'm so glad it's in the capable hands of a sovereign, covenant-keeping, and all-powerful God. And I'm so glad my times, my good times and bad times, sad times and happy times are in his hands. Aren't you? So if you're passing through the dark valleys right now, if you're in distress, and you say, I've been here before, I reflect on the past, and I've... I, I know what it is, whether it's people that are talking about you or whether you're facing the uncertainties of the future or whether you're struggling with inward trials or whatever it is, my friends, you feel to be pressured, you're in a tight place. May I say, if you've learned that God is a trustworthy God, that your God can be trusted, and that your times are in his hands, if you've learned, as verse 14 says, but I trusted in thee, O Lord, I said, thou art my God. My God. He's a covenant-keeping God. That's covenant language. If you've learned that, that he has vouchsafed himself to you in covenant commitment, he's pledged himself to you and me in covenant commitment before time even began, God obligated himself to take care of you. He swore by himself. And he could swear by no greater. He swore by himself. God invested himself into your eternal well-being. If that's true, if he's your God, if he's my God, and can't you trust him? You see, this is learning theology in life. You're learning something about God through the trials of life. Trouble has a way of teaching you valuable lessons. And it taught David through experience. And I'm not talking about just teaching you up here. May I say, when we talk about learning that God is a trustworthy God, he's a sovereign God, he has capable hands, I'm not just saying that's a bit of information for you to learn notionally or cognitively, I'm talking about an experiential knowledge. And I'm asking you today, my beloved, have you learned this experientially in your own experience, through your own life? Have you learned to trust God? Trusting God. Have you learned that God is worthy to be loved? Notice verse 23. Oh, love the Lord, all ye his saints. So he speaks of trusting God in this psalm. He also speaks of loving God in this psalm. The God that we trust is worthy to be loved. He's a God who deserves to be adored because he has taken such good care of me in my life. You know, I can't teach a person to love God. I can't give them that initial inclination of the heart toward God. Only the grace of God can do that. When a person is born again, the law of love is written on the heart. Paul says it like this, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9, and he's speaking of loving each other, but watch what he says. He says, concerning loving one another, you need not that I should write unto you, for you are taught of God to love one another. God puts a principle in your heart when you're born again that flows outward in compassion and love to the brethren, to the saints. And if you love the saints, if you love God's people, if you love the church, if you love the brethren, my beloved, may I say that's an evidence that God has touched your heart. We love and not only love the brethren, but love Jesus, love him. For we love him, 1 John 4, 19 says, why? Because we love him because he first loved us. If you love God today, that's an evidence that he loved you first and he put that love in your heart. He's written the law of love in your innermost being. I can't teach a person to love God, but I could exhort people that have been taught to love him, I could exhort them to love him more. 
May I say every one of us today could love God more. Couldn't we? We sing a song like that. I want to love him more. I want to love him more. He's done so very much for me. I want to love him more. Jesus said, if a man love me, he will keep my commandments. And we, the Father and I, will come unto him and make our abode with him. Indeed, one of the ways we show our love to God is by being more and more obedient, keeping his commandments more and more. And one of the reasons we love God is because he's, again, as the hymn says, done so very much for us. Psalm 116 verse 1 says, I love the Lord because he hath heard the voice of my supplications. I want to ask you, has God ever answered your prayers? Has he taken care of you all through these years? Has he helped you in your hour of need over and over and over again? Has he taken your burden off your shoulders and resolved your problems and difficulties? And as you look back on the meandering scenes of the past, you can say, the Lord has been so good to me. Verse 19 says, oh, how great is thy goodness. How great is your goodness. God has been so good to me. Don't you love him for what he's done for you in your life through his marvelous providence? Oh, love the Lord. You see, this is an exhortation. This is part of the exhortation in the psalm. He, we had his prayer of lament. We had his reflection on the past. We have his praise in verses 19 to 22. How great is God's goodness. God will hide his people in the secret of his presence from the pride of man. He will keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord. That's the language of praise. And now exhortation. Oh, love the Lord, all ye his saints. Here's my message to you today. My exhortation to you today, my beloved. I want you to love God more. Brethren, sisters, love the Lord. You say, well, how do I love the Lord? Start by reflecting on all that he's done for you. He saved you when you couldn't save yourself. He had mercy on your poor, benighted soul. He rescued you as a firebrand plucked from the burning. He elevated you from the dunghill of iniquity and made you as a prince to inherit thrones of glory. My beloved, he's never left me nor forsaken me for almost 60 years in my life. May I say, I want to love him more, don't you? Here's theology that we can learn in life. We learn that he's a God who can be trusted. We learn he's a God who's worthy to be loved and adored. And finally, we learn he's a God of hope. Verse 24, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart, all ye that hope in the Lord. Now, the psalm speaks of fearing God, verse 19. Trusting God, verses 1, 6, 14, and 19, and more. That is just putting your cares into his hands. My times are in his hands, trusting God. So it speaks of fearing God, that is taking God seriously, knowing he's real, then trusting God, then loving God, and now it speaks of hoping in God. All ye that hope in the Lord, that suggests the idea of a future outlook. Now I want to ask you today, what's your outlook on the future? Hope. The very word has a future orientation, right? If you were to say, I hope the sun will shine tomorrow. <laughs> You might want to look at your uh, weather app on your phone and it'll probably tell you that it won't. But anyway, you say, I hope it will. Hope is a, an outlook on the future. It's a positive or an optimistic outlook on the future. That, that's a good definition. What is hope? It's a, an optimistic outlook on the future. Now, a Christian has reason to be hopeful. 
You could be a secular optimist. You say, I, I'm just hoping. I, I and usually what a secular optimist is saying is, I wish things would improve. But the Christian can say, I have hope for the future, for tomorrow, because my hope is anchored in God. He's the God of hope. All ye that hope in the Lord, be of good courage. I want to say to you today, dear friends, whatever you're worried about, whatever your struggle, whatever your trial, I want to say, be of good courage. Be strong. It's time to tap into the manly virtues of Christian courage. You say, where do I get those? Through the knowledge of who your God is, be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. You keep doing what he's called you to do. You keep going the direction that he's called you to go. And he will give you the strength as you move forward. Be of good courage, he shall strengthen your heart, all ye that hope in the Lord. As you think about the future and as I think about the future of our church, of your personal life, of your family, of your relationship, whatever is in store for you in the future, whatever, whatever the future might hold for me. As we think about the future, and especially the future after this world is over, after I breathe my last here, you say, is there any future after that? Absolutely. For if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most miserable, our life extends beyond the curtain or the veil of this world. My friends, as we think about the future, may we realize our hope is in the Lord. So this psalm speaks of fearing God, trusting God, loving God, and hoping in God. If your experience in the trials and afflictions of life have taught you that God is real, and that he can be trusted and that he deserves to be loved and adored. And that so long as he's on the throne, there's no such thing as a hopeless situation. And you've had a fine theological education, my friends. Though you've never been to seminary or you've never read a systematic theology book, may that knowledge of God, that theology, lead you and me to doxology. May doctrine lead to praise. May grace lead to godliness. May truth lead to practice in our lives and may we have good courage and keep going forward trusting him to take care of us.
You are listening to Grace Alone Radio Network, streaming Bible teaching from a primitive Baptist perspective, around the clock and around the world.